This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello, cardio nerds. Friends, welcome back to our in-depth adult congenital heart disease series as we dive into the world of patent ductus arteriosus, or PDA. I'm here with Dan and Kate from Cardio Nerds. Hi, Dan and Kate. Hello, hello, Dan Clark. This is such a great opportunity for us to do it, another recording session. We have a special guest host today. I'm especially pleased to have Dr. Kate Wilcox joining us on the podcast for the very first time. Kate is a Cardio Nerds Academy Fellow of House Tausig, and Kate is an internal medicine and pediatrics resident at Medical College of Wisconsin. She is passionate about medical education, health equity, and excellent transitional care for complex pediatric patients as they grow into thriving adults. She is enthusiastic about all aspects of cardiology, but is especially interested in adult congenital disease. Kate, we are so grateful to have you as part of the Academy and today as part of this amazing discussion. Thank you, Dan. I'm so thrilled to be on the podcast today talking about my favorite subject, adult congenital heart disease. Well, we're delighted to have you. And next, I'd like to introduce Dr. Tony Pastor, our tour guide through the FLEX subject. Tony received his degree in neuroscience at John Hopkins University. He then went to medical school at Baylor College of Medicine, where he stayed to complete a med-peds residency and later chief residency in internal medicine. He completed pediatric cardiology fellowship at Boston Children's Hospital, where he has stayed and is about to complete his ACHD training. As Tony likes to say, he is PGY old. He's accepted a job in ACHD and cardiac imaging at Yale. And we're really delighted to have him here with us today. Welcome to Cardio Nerds, Tony. Thanks, Dan. It's such a pleasure to be here. I'm even more excited to introduce Dr. Candace Silversides. Dr. Silversides is a professor of medicine at the University of Toronto. Uh, she's a chair in pregnancy and heart disease at the Miles Nadal Heart Center at Mount Sinai Hospital. She's an international ACHD and cardiobstetrics expert. It's familiar to many of our listeners from prior Cardio Nerds episodes. Additionally, Dr. Silversides is the inaugural editor-in-chief of Jack Advances. Welcome, Dr. Silversides. Thanks, and thank you in particular for inviting me to be here. I think PDAs are relatively common, especially for people that do cardiac imaging as part of their career or part of their training, and so it's a common lesion, and I'm happy to get the opportunity to discuss it today. Dr. Silversides, thank you so much for joining us. As an ACHD fellow myself, I'd love to hear how you got interested in ACHD and maybe learn a little bit more about the new journal, Jack Advances, which seems to have a keen interest in ACHD literature. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, I became interested in ACHD when I was a trainee. Where I was training, when we would get a case of adult congenital heart disease, often people didn't know how to manage the patient correctly. And so right there, it kind of interested me because it seemed like it was a field that we needed to know more about. And then again, as a trainee, I went and did some really great electives with Joe Perloff at UCLA and Gary Webb in Toronto, who were really pioneers in the field and also great enthusiastic teachers and very motivating cardiologists. And they got me interested in the field. And so that's how it started. Um, and I've been doing it for a while now. 
Jack Advances is a new Jack sister journal that's focused on new and growing fields of cardiology, including adult congenital heart disease. And so I'm really happy to be the editor-in-chief and to promote the field of adult congenital heart disease. Well, that's fantastic. I love hearing about how our ACHD community first became inspired and how the field of ACHD is really strengthening and growing both clinically and with research as well. Well, Tony, should we get started with the case? Yeah, let's do it, Dan. All right. So today I'd like to discuss one of my favorite patients that I've had the privilege of taking care of. Let's call this patient Artie Duct. Uh, It's a 57-year-old male who was referred to us with dyspnea nuanced atrial fibrillation and left-sided heart dilation on his echocardiogram. I think a lot of our listeners, when they hear PDA, they may immediately think of posterior descending artery, or maybe that's just my bias as an adult cardiology trained fellow. So Tony, do you mind explaining exactly what a PDA is? Yes, of course. So although that PDA is important, today we're talking about the PDA that we refer to as a patent ductus arteriosus. And this is a residual connection between the systemic and pulmonary circulations that's left over from pedal light. So it all begins with embryonic aortic arches. And I know what you're thinking. We need to dig super deep into med school embryology, but we can do this. So in normal fetal development, you have these proximal portions of the sixth pair of embryonic aortic arches, and they persist and you get proximal branch pulmonary arteries. And then the distal portion of those left six arches persists as a ductus arteriosus connecting the left pulmonary artery with the left dorsal aorta. So you're probably thinking like, why do we need this? Why do we need a ductus arteriosus? And it turns out that the right ventricle produces about 65% of the fetal cardiac output, but only about 5 to 10% ends up going to the lungs. And that kind of makes sense because you wouldn't want the majority of blood going to a higher resistance pulmonary vasculature that's full of embryonic fluid. And so you need some sort of bypass. And so the PDA allows for blood to bypass the lungs and go down into the descending aorta. And then after birth, the increase in oxygen tension and the change in prostaglandin levels leads to a closure of the patent ductus arteriosus functionally. And then that usually happens within the first 48 hours of life. And then a more permanent seal forms two to three weeks later. Wow. Thanks, Tony. You have me flashing back to my first year of medical school there with that explanation. Thanks for explaining the important role of the PDA in fetal circulation. What happens if it doesn't close? That's a really good question, Kate, and I'm going to let Tony tackle that one. But before he does, I also just wanted to remind everyone about some important risk factors for having a PDA, such as being born prematurely, having trisomy 21, or congenital rubella. So, okay, now that I've gotten those kind of risk factors off of my mind, Tony, would you please walk us through the flow of blood and the PDA circulation and factors that affect closure? Yeah, certainly. It kind of really depends on a couple of factors. One, how big is the PDA? So what the size of the pated ductus is? And then also the flow resistance to determine how hemodynamically significant the shunting can be for a patient. Oh, oh, this is actually a perfect time. Can we do that thing where you guys do with the magic school bus? I love when you guys do that. Sure thing, Tony. All aboard. Please take your seat, hands and feet inside the vehicle at all times. We're going to start in the SPC and come down to the right atrium, then down the tricuspid valve and out the right ventricular outflow tract. Now we are at a crossroads. 
We can either take our bus to the lungs or we can go down the ductus arteriosus and get to the descending aorta. Decisions, decisions. Well, it becomes an easier decision for blood. The pulmonary vasculature pressure drops dramatically after birth and really around three months of age to kind of normalize to levels around the systemic circulation. And we all know from thermodynamics that flow goes down the path of least resistance. So blood preferentially wants to go to the lungs, creating a left to right shunt through the PDA. Exactly. And so given that extra blood flow going to the left side of the heart, we see over time left atrial and left ventricular dilation, exactly how our patient RD duct presented. The atrial dilation ends up predisposing patients to atrial arrhythmias such as atrial fibrillation. Yeah, and in addition to the effects on the left side of the heart, you also have a state of pulmonary overcirculation, and that can over time affect the pulmonary vascular bed. And in the worst case scenario, it can lead to severe pulmonary hypertension or Eisenmenger syndrome where you have shunt reversal. Oh, thank you so much for that. All of you, Dr. Silversides, Tony, Dan, C, and Kate. This is really helping us understand the anatomy, physiology, and the pathophysiology behind a setup for a patent ductus arteriosus. But I thought unrepaired PDA leads to Eisenmenger physiology. Is that a possibility in our patient? Yep, absolutely, Dan. So as more flow goes to the lungs, this ends up remodeling the pulmonary vasculature, and ultimately it can raise the resistance in the lungs. So once the lung pressure exceeds the systemic pressure, then we get shunt reversal. So instead of a left to right shunt, we get right to left flow shunt. So blue blood going down the aorta. So that means your oxygen saturation in the bottom half of your body will be lower than the upper part of your body. And we call that differential cyanosis. It's actually really interesting. And I think there's actually a lot, this tends to be on board questions a lot, but you end up seeing clubbing in the toes, but not in the hands because you're only getting cyanotic or blue blood in the lower extremities. And additionally, if a patient develops a clot on the right side of the heart, it can then go across the PDA and cause a paradoxical embolus and the systemic vasculature. Thanks, Tony, so much for that. These are such useful pearls. Again, it's really interesting to think about, and this really relates to a lot of what happens in adult congenital heart disease is when you have blood vessels that don't have valves and allow for bidirectional flow, it's all about pressure gradients, you know, and that really is so much about cardiology in general. So understanding that you do not want this reversal flow to have uh, increased right to left shunt, ideally, we'd probably want to treat these patients before Eisenmenger's happens. Yeah, exactly. So when we have children who have a patent ductus arteriosus that are hemodynamically significant, we end up trying to treat them medically first. We'll give them NSAIDs, we'll give them acetaminophen, and that ends up inhibiting prostaglandin formation. And occasionally that will end up closing the PDA on its own. We can also take them to the cath lab and close it in an individual approach, or we can surgically close it via lateral thoracotomy. Fantastic discussion, everyone. Tony, I've been away from kind of neonatal medicine for a while, but we kind of recently have even more potential for PDA closures and, and really small babies now. Would you mind just discussing that a little bit? Dan, so the world of interventional cardiology is constantly evolving in the pediatric realm. And so, you know, even when I started fellowship, we were surgically closing patent ductus arteriosus because children were too small and we couldn't get a device small enough to close in a neonate. And nowadays there's actually a new device called a Piccolo device that we are more and more using that's specifically designed to close patent ductus arteriosus in the lab on these smaller kids. 
Awesome. Well, thanks, Tony. Yeah, I think the whole field of adult congenital heart disease and interventional cardiology, the whole field of cardiology really in general, just continues to expand and come up with new creative innovations to address these problems. So thanks for enlightening us about that update. So to get back to our patient, could you elaborate a little bit more about what ended up happening? Yeah, absolutely. So we did a test that you and I both love. It's near and dear to our heart. We did a cardiac MRI to get a sense of the anatomy of the ductus and then also to calculate a QP to QS, uh, which ended up being 2.5. So the ratio of pulmonary blood flow to systemic blood flow was 2.5 greater. Um, so we then took the patient to the cath lab to assess his pressures. And so what we found was that the pulmonary pressures were 60 systolic with a mean of 32, but it ended up having a normal pulmonary vascular resistance, which ended up being important for decision-making in terms of whether we could close this PDA or not. So our interventionalist, after knowing that the pressures were, the PVR was normal, ended up closing the duct in the cath lab using an Amplatzer occluder device. That's super interesting, Tony, and what a great outcome. I'm curious what would have happened if his PVR would have been higher. And Dr. Silversides, could you walk us through how you think about the hemodynamics in these patients and what treatment strategies we can offer them? Sure. Maybe I'll just start with treatment strategies because we've already alluded to it. Well, the first one is you can do nothing and just keep an eye on things. You've heard about closing the PDA either percutaneously or surgically. And the third would be in those patients who have severe pulmonary vascular disease to treat medically with pulmonary vasodilators. The way we tend to think about PDAs, first of all, we think about them are silent or not silent. So silent means we can't hear them. And then whether or not they're small or hemodynamically significant. So in terms of deciding if they're hemodynamically significant, so if it is a hemodynamically significant left to right shunt, so kind of in that early stage of things, we look at the impact of the, the shunt on the left atrium and the left ventricle. And similar to this case, uh, this is a hemodynamically significant shunt because you can see there's dilation of the left atrium and the left ventricle. And not only do we have to see that we think it's hemodynamically significant, but we have to think it's hemodynamically significant and attributable to the PDA. So, you know, there is other causes of LA enlargement and LV enlargement. You have to attribute those factors to the PDA. So first you decide if it's significant shunt. And then the second part of the equation is whether or not it's impacting the pulmonary vascular bed. And in particular, this relates to that decision making on whether or not you can safely close a PDA. If there's severe pulmonary vascular disease, it's unsafe to close the PDA. So you have to work through that issue of whether or not there's low enough pulmonary vascular resistance that it's a safe procedure. And so there's two different sets of guidelines that you can look at. The first is the 2018 ACC AHA guidelines and the way they define pulmonary vascular resistance that's low enough to go ahead and do an intervention is patients who have PA systolic pressures less than 50% systemic or pulmonary vascular resistance less than a third systemic. In contrast, the ESC ACHD guidelines have kind of streamlined it a bit, and they use PVR based on Woods units, and they say it's okay to do an intervention if you have a hemodynamically significant PDA if the Woods units are less than three. So there is different criteria depending on which set of guidelines you look at, but either way, what you see is that if your pulmonary vascular resistance is low, you're good to go to close a hemodynamically significant shunt. The other extreme is when it's not safe to close a PDA, and that's really when you have severe pulmonary 
hypertension, with shunt reversal, as we've talked about, the Eisenmenger scenario. And in that scenario, it's unsafe to close a PDA. So the definition in that scenario is you have a PDA, but now with right to left shunting. And so that's when you get those physical exam findings like the differential cyanosis. And you also have a PA pressure that's more than two-thirds systemic or pulmonary vascular resistance that's more than two-thirds systemic. And so that's that other extreme where you have Eisenmenger's physiology and it is unsafe to close a PDA. And then in between, it gets a lot trickier. The ESC guidelines give this guidance that if you have pulmonary vascular resistance between three and five wood units and you still have significant left to right shunting, which is greater than 1.5. So, you know, this case that you saw where the shunt ratio was 2.5 would fall into that hemodynamically significant left to right shunt. They say it's safe to go ahead and close it. But I would say for all those people that lie in the middle, my advice would be get them to an ACHD center of excellence so ACHD and pulmonary hypertension docs can really decide on whether or not it's safe. And that has to often be individualized. And then, as I mentioned, the third kind of strategy apart from surveillance or treating with an intervention is to think about medical therapy. And certainly one option is to try and lower the pulmonary vascular resistance with pulmonary vasodilators. Wow. Thanks, Dr. Silversides. That was incredibly systematic, detailed, and brilliant. I really appreciate you walking us through that. I am curious about your experience with patients with ductus arteriosus and Isomanger physiology. So those patients that we don't want to end up closing their duct, how do you approach these patients? What are they at risk for? Any treatment strategies you might want to recommend to the listeners at home? Yeah. So the first, which we've already again alluded to, is this principle of do no harm. And harm would be closing a PDA in the setting of Eisenmenger's syndrome because they really need it as kind of a blow-off connection. And so that's the first thing is don't do things you shouldn't that could ultimately end up in mortality. And then there's other conditions that can destabilize a patient with Eisenmenger. So for instance, a pregnancy. So uh, women should be advised against pregnancy and receive appropriate contraception or big procedures, you know, non-cardiac procedures, gallbladders out, other things really need to be done in a place where you have a team that can make sure they give an anesthetic properly to these patients have very finely balanced hemodynamics to ensure you don't destabilize it. So the first is do no harm. The second important factor, I think, is to recognize that Eisenmenger's is a multi-system disease. It's not just about the heart. So although these patients uh, are at risk for cardiac complications like arrhythmias, sudden death, heart failure, there's also other things that can happen. They have hematologic abnormalities. So for instance, they get a secondary erythrocytosis due to the chronic hypoxemia. That can lead to some headache symptoms and other symptoms secondary to the erythrocytosis. They can get iron deficiency anemia, and that's associated with strokes. They can get brain abscesses. They can get renal dysfunction due to chronic hypoxemia. They paradoxically can bleed it from their lungs from those high pulmonary vascular beds, but also thrombose in the pulmonary vascular bed because of stagnant flow and endothelial dysfunction and other abnormalities in the setting of severe pulmonary hypertension. So they bleed and they can get clots and they can get bone troubles like an osteoarthropathy that can be a painful bone problem in patients with Eisenmenger syndrome. 
So I've listed many of the potential complications, but the principle being recognize it's more than just the heart. And the third principle I would say is that there are treatment strategies to try and lower the pulmonary vascular resistance or even prevent some of the progressive pulmonary vascular disease that occurs with this condition. And so the original study was the BREATHE 5 study. It looked at the use of bocentin in symptomatic patients with Eisenmenger syndrome and then came along the PDE5 inhibitors, sildenafil, tadalafil, those were starting to be used. I think nowadays there's a much larger armamentarium of pulmonary vasodilators that are used in this population. Again, it should be done in conjunction with PAHACHD specialists, but thinking about treating the pulmonary vascular disease is uh, growing increasingly important, and we're getting more and more data about uh, different pulmonary vasodilators that are safe and effective in this population. Thank you so much for that detailed answer, Dr. Sobosides. I, you know, I really love the systematic approach and your emphasis as a teaching pearl on how Eisenmangers is really a whole body disease and their complications outside the heart that we can't forget. The only thing that I wanted to add in addition was, you know, in terms of inpatient management, when we've seen these patients in the hospital, I want our, our listeners to remember that anytime you have shunting lesions, especially with right to left shunting, there's risk of paradoxical emboli, as Tony mentioned. And so we think about bubble traps on IVs so that we don't have paradoxical air emboli and we're much more meticulous with management of bubbles when, when IVs go in. And so I think that goes back to to Dr. Silverside's point about ACHD centers of excellence and care teams are comfortable with treating patients with these types of lesions. Thank you guys. I think that it's been a fabulous discussion. I don't know if anyone has anything they want to add in terms of questions or thoughts. So my question for Dr. Silverside, I'm wondering if you have a patient who is somewhere kind of in the middle with a PVR that's a little too high to feel comfortable closing the PDA, but still not quite at the Eisenmenger point. How long would you give them on pulmonary vasodilators before you kind of decide to reassess their situation? Yeah, I don't know what the right answer is. I mean, it probably depends on how long you think they've had high PA pressures. You know, it would be different in a younger population compared to an older population. There's no real data to guide you for sure. But obviously, you know that the remodeling of the pulmonary vascular bed is not instantaneous. And so, I don't know, I would think 6 to 12 months, like a reasonable amount of time. But I don't have any study to tell you exactly how long of time you should give it. What I could tell you, though, is that, you know, it is something we sometimes think of do, say, more commonly with ASDs. We do try and drop their PA pressures with pulmonary vasodilators and then think about closing an ASD. I think in ACHD, it's less common to do that with PDA. It's not common anyways. It, you know, most of the time you either have a very small one and you deal with it or a big one that's too far gone. But in terms of this whole strategy of treat with vasodilators and then think about closure, I think it's really complex. It's not that commonly done. And so again, I would just make that one more point about this is that it really should be done by a team that thinks about this a lot because you really have to individualize this kind of stuff. There's no cookbook way to do it safely. Well, thank you so much for that, Dr. Silversides. And this has been a really, really wonderful discussion. Dr. Silversides, we've probably asked you this before, 
particularly when we had you on for our Cardio B episode. But would you mind telling us what makes your heart flutter about adult congenital heart disease? And you don't have to choose which field or domain you like better. Yeah, I think ACHD is really fun because it combines structural heart disease, heart failure, arrhythmias, cardioobstetrics. It combines a lot of aspects of cardiology. That's one point. Okay, I'm going to give you three points of what makes my heart flutter. But the second is that it involves a relatively young patient cohort, which, you know, certainly when I was younger attracted me to the field. But still, I find it important or interesting that I'm looking after younger patients. And the third aspect is I think the ACHD community is a really great community to be part of, and it's been a lot of fun in my career. And so all those variables really make me love the field of adult congenital heart disease. Oh, man, I have such a huge smile on my face listening to this and listening to you talk about all the things you love about ACHD. It makes me even more excited to potentially get into the field one day. So since it's such a broad field with so many overlapping components with other specialties, I'd be curious, Tony, to hear kind of what your experience as an ACHD fellow has been like and what your career plans are moving forward. Sure thing, Kate. I have a big smile because you're my peds and you're going to do ACHD and that just makes me super happy. So yeah, my experience as an ACHD fellow has been wonderful. I was really fortunate to train here in Boston with a fantastic group of mentors, clinicians, educators that I can now call anytime as lifelong friends. And they're definitely going to get phone calls from me as the first time ACHD attending. But, you know, I think, you know, listening to Dr. Silversides explain what makes her heart flutter about the field, there's just so much that I can identify with the complexity of the patients, the younger patient population, the hemodynamics, the imaging possibilities. And I think it adds like ACHD patients are incredibly marginalized and vulnerable and they really need advocates for them. And so I think that really attracted me to the field as a whole. I'm really excited to join the Yale ACHD group where hopefully I can take excellent care of ACHD patients and also do some cardiac imaging at the same time. And long-term goals are hopefully to do advanced imaging research on our patient population as well to see if we can help figure out better predictors of outcomes in this patient pool. I joke around that my plan B is always to be a groupie for my husband who's an opera singer, but I'm definitely going to stick around as an ACHD doc, even if I have to do it remotely. That's amazing. Maybe you could do both. It's not a bad plan B. It might be my plan A. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks everyone uh, for joining us today and for helping us to learn about pain ductus arteriosus. Thanks to all of our listeners for joining in. Have a great day. <laughs> Tony, we kind of recently have even more potential for PA closures and, and really small babies now. Would you mind just discussing that a little bit? Wait, is that in the script? I don't, sorry, <laughs> I think I missed that. Uh, no, sorry, I was just, I was, I just wanted, you wanted to, to add that. So to, I just wanted, yeah. To, yeah. I, you're I you're keeping that. me on my toes, Dan. Dan. Yeah, Dan is trying to see if you actually should graduate. He's I, a little bit. This is my final test. Your question is about neonatal closure. <laughs> this is oral. Hey, Tony, this is oral boards. I don't know if you know that. But <laughs> Dr. Silversides is about to sign off on your career. <laughs> She's texting Anne Marie right now.